Hi, and welcome to the Inside Out Security Show. I'm your host, Cindy Ng, and I'm joined by security practitioners who will introduce themselves. And today's icebreaker question is inspired by a thread in the sysadmin section of Reddit. There is an IT guy so dedicated to his job fixing the problems of WannaCry that he worked overtime and he ended up crashing his car. And I don't want anyone on this show to crash their cars because I know how dedicated you are to your work. So let's not forget our lives outside of work. And I wanted to know what summer plans do you have in mind? Are you going to have a small or big trip coming up, hiking, swimming? Hi, this is Mike, and I have summer plans to camp in the backyard with my daughter, which is something she's been begging to do, but it keeps, you know, being cold. Hi, this is Killian. Well, at least one of us doesn't have to worry about crashing our car being so dedicated. Mike's Teslas, I'm sure, drive themselves at this point, so, <laughs> you know, he's he's safe. But in terms of my summer plans, I've been eyeing up a road trip with some buddies, or at least one buddy, to check out Yellowstone and maybe Zion National Park again. We were there a couple years ago, but we want to spend a little bit more time. This is Chris. I don't drive, so I'm not too worried about that. But yeah, living in the city, you know, I'm not sure that me falling asleep is going to affect the subway as much. But no major plans. I think what I want to just do is get outside a little bit more. I spent way too much time inside during the, uh, the colder months. I want to be more active and get some sun and uh, just see how that goes. Thanks, guys. For our regular listeners, if you enjoy our show, and if you don't, I'd like to know too, please go to iTunes to rate and review the Inside Out Security Show, and we'll put you in the running for our deck of our InfoSec cards that's based on the Cards Against Humanity card game. And to learn more, please visit veronis.com slash review. And so for today's show, I wanted to start with a potentially uh, fun, stalkerish story with how scientists, they found a way to photograph people in 3D through walls using Wi-Fi. And so if I wanted to be a stalker and see what my non-existent child is doing or spy on my non-existent employees, it'd be a good way to do it. And I like the idea of it, but I wonder if there's a business need to do this. What were your thoughts? Wi-Fi, of course, as we all know, because we can be all over our house penetrates through walls and using that and how it kind of interacts with different objects and uh, the signals, you know, refract and whatnot, it gives them the ability with some, you know, like a fixed point and moving around to map that out in 3D, to build a 3D visualization of an environment. My first thought was how dangerous this could be in terms of searches and police searches and things like that. And I remembered a Supreme Court case, I think from the 90s, Kylo, where the Police pulled up to his house. They suspected him of growing marijuana, and they pulled up with thermal imagers. And obviously, he was growing marijuana. They caught him, um, so he's in trouble. But they tried to get it thrown out and ended up going up to the Supreme Court as an illegal search. And the Supreme Court actually did rule in his favor that it was an illegal search because the police didn't obtain a search warrant to search his house. And the the way they looked at it is, at the time, um, thermal imaging was not in common use, and it allowed them to see within the walls of his house, more or less, and, and they didn't have a warrant to do that. There was some dissension in the decision. It was a split decision. And I think it was Justice Scalia had actually, in his supporting opinion, mentioned that some of the ways that they judged this, so based on the fact that it wasn't in common use right now, which actually has changed in a couple of years. You can actually go to the sporting goods store and buy thermal imagers. They're actually not that expensive anymore. But he looked at it and said, we don't know where 
technology in the future is going to go and what this is going to mean for our privacy. So he advocated taking a longer view of this. And it's something that we face day to day as technology changes. So I actually have a friend in Canada who is working in a company that's working to commercialize that. And what they are pitching it for is for home security. Because, you know, right now, a lot of the home security things are like they you have a little like magnetic indicator on every door and window and different things. Not nearly as good as like someone wandering through the house. So that's what uh, they're trying to do, that no one's supposed to be in your house. It alerts or for things like medic alert, if you have, you know, elder care sort of situation. And it's kind of neat all the stuff it can do. Like it can even differentiate between, you know, people and dogs and things. Maybe not dogs and toddlers, though. A lot of times technology is not inherently a good or bad thing. It's kind of how it's applied that makes it good or bad or contentious or controversial. I remember reading the article about using Wi-Fi for this supposed thermal imaging, and a lot of the points they made about how it could be used for, say, detecting people in rubble after an earthquake, that I can see having a positive application. But of course, there's ways to, you know, as, as, as Killian said, there's probably applications we're not thinking of and ways that things will change we're not thinking of that you know, can kind of push us in the direction. I'm kind of on the fence about it. Obviously, I am not the kind of guy to approve illegal searches of homes by using your Wi-Fi signal. But if this can save lives down the line, I, I can see the benefit there too. Now, after this, everyone's going to go out to the sporting goods store and buy thermal imagers and start spying on their neighbors. I mean, I'm going to Google it like now. <laughs> Didn't they give away a pair of those goggles in like Call of Duty 4 or something? Like there was a special edition you got them with like the I feel like at the point at which technology is just given away as a bonus item when you buy a video game is when it, you can, you can say, oh, yeah, this is pretty ubiquitous. So. Yeah, that was, I think that was um, Night Vision. Night Vision is also pretty cheap anymore. I'm trying to think of um, the name of one of the big companies. It used to be Armasite. I think they got acquired by somebody, but they make them. Um, and they're actually, I mean, when I say relatively inexpensive, I mean a couple hundred or a thousand bucks maybe. But considering even a couple years ago, the same technology was multi-thousands and really only available to governments. It's, that just shows the rapid uh, change in technology. I'm going to segue to another government-related thing, though, because there was another tool. It was a third-party tool. It, it sounds pretty simple. I feel like any business would implement it themselves, and that was prone to abuse. So what happened was there was an automated tool at the U.S. Department of Education website. They made it easier for families to fill out the financial form FAFSA by connecting it to the IRS information on an individual's or the family's total gross income. And so there was a private investigator who wanted to see if he could figure out then-candidate Trump's adjusted gross income. It ended up becoming a felony. But I think the more important and larger point, I had two thoughts where one is information about people is powerful and you can use it to hurt people. And then another thing is just because you disagree with something doesn't mean that you should do it because it's against the law. And these days... There are less bank robbers, and now people are doing stuff in front of the computer. And when you're working in front of a computer, it's more seen as like a white-collar job. And if you're a hacker, you're also sitting in front of a computer. And not that I want to be the ethics police, but it makes me think of the insider traders who end up in jail. And it's all 
some of it is accidental too, because I've read of articles where people wanted to help a friend, or they saw everyone else sharing inside information, and these are really blurry lines. And well, it's interesting. You don't normally think of doing a search and filling out a form in a web page as a felony activity. Well, I think that goes to what you're saying, Cindy, which is that you know a lot of the stuff seems very innocuous but has uh, real potential for doing something that's harmful or, you know, when you get into information disclosures, the damage that something, you know, this otherwise very innocuous can do. And that's something I think that a lot of people when they're first getting into information security don't realize is just like a lot of times, you know, like we deal with situations where, oh, well, someone in the company was looking at information they shouldn't have been. And their response was, the permissions were set up that they let me do that. I thought it was totally fine for me to be looking through everyone's payroll data just because, you know, the accounting group didn't have the right permissions on it. And that's, you know, clearly not the case, but it's a blurry line in most people's minds. Well, first off, if somebody's browsing uh, through our payroll, if you find mine, just go ahead and pop an extra zero on the end there. That's <laughs> totally cool. <laughs> I think for security people, it's a little bit of a mindset change. So, you know, when they put this form up there, it had a noble cause. It was to help people fill out this long, you know, cumbersome government form. Everyone had to do one of these no's. Um, they're, they're not pleasant. So it was a noble cause to help people do that, to make it easier to get access to those funds. But as security people, we have to have the cynical mindset in some ways, where we have to assume that somebody's going to abuse everything. They're going to try and take advantage. And it's, it sounds kind of terrible to say it out loud, but you have to always think of that worst case scenario. Because inevitably, people are going to, you know, misuse things, even if it's not, you know, in this case, it sounds like the guy was deliberately trying to do something um, he wasn't supposed to be doing. But sometimes people just misuse things, and it can result in problems down the road. I think we just kind of need to have that critical eye to all of these services, whatever kind of the cause is. And that also goes back to one of our recurring themes is security by design, kind of weaving it in at the design phase so we can still meet our noble causes, but be cognizant of security um, kind of throughout. The next story will help bridge the other stories we have in store today, where after WannaCry, people are realizing more and more systems are being computerized and all IT staff need cybersecurity awareness. And they mentioned three things that they should do with IT people. You should retrain staff, push everyone to the cloud, and that you need security built into new technology. Is there anything on, on that list that you'd want to add or refine or comment on? People need to just, in general, devote more resources towards cybersecurity. I mean, obviously, IT is not the sort of thing that everyone in business understands inherently. They hear, you know, little trickles of, of what's happening in the IT world or the cybersecurity world through the news. But I think it's becoming more and more apparent that it's something that everyone needs to be aware of. If you're going to have all your important information digitized, you're going to have you know, dependency upon these systems and then, you know, not secure them. Obviously, that's it's not the sort of thing that the typical I could be wrong, but the typical business person probably doesn't have top of mind unless they're very much aware of this stuff. Um, I definitely agree with the idea that, as I said, all IT jobs, just cybersecurity jobs. Now, you think of these small shops that have like one IT person. It's you have to be not only proficient in the technology you're working with, but also how to secure it because no one else is going to do it. This is going back a couple of years. I was having a meeting with some customers and the manager that I was talking to kind of had made mention that he had a real difficulty finding solid IT generalists. And I think we're seeing a trend in, in IT and in security in general where um, people who 
I, I feel like got into the the field in you know the 90s early 2000s um the push was always to specialize in something you know be a dba be a you know an exchange admin um, be you know uh, an ad expert there was a, a trend in that to kind of make yourself indispensable within an organization and i think to a certain extent we've over specialized in a lot of ways and we'll have to see that kind of come back a little bit where everybody needs to share some of the responsibility we all need to be cognizant of the different field and how they all interplay because anymore, you know, just kind of of those examples, Exchange is so tied to Active Directory. Um, directory services are so tied to some cloud services, you know, even in the Microsoft Active Directory and Azure. They're so tied together. And inherent in all of this is security weaved through the entire thing. You know, we're seeing a little bit of a shift where not only do we have to become more of IT generalists um, as part of that, we also have to be security practitioners as well, too, even just to function in the general IT world. See, I, I think I'm going to push back on that, Kellen. I think that is just impossible. Like, if anything, you know, you're saying like, oh, you had a job previously and, you know, the guy had trouble finding IT generalists. I don't think that's, you know, IT practitioner's fault or something we can move towards. I think that everything has just become more specialized. And as we use IT more and more, there's just more and more things to know. And that as a result, everyone has to be more specialized and it becomes systematically harder and harder to be a, a true generalist. I, I don't I don't disagree with you, Mike. I think you're entirely right. There are entire sections of, of IT and technology that I am woefully underread about, but I'm at least cognizant of them. I know enough, let's say, about databases. Um, you know, I know enough SQL. I can move around. I know the the general setup and some concepts of it. But I would no way call myself a DBA or or purport to be. But I know enough to at least make me proficient. But I think you're right. I mean, as technology pops up, there's no way to know everything. But I think we need to endeavor to learn. What about where you are specialized in one field and then you transition into doing something else? It's much harder to go back to what you originally specialized in because it's, it's hard to catch up when you have like a younger, more eager person. I mean, I, I, I think so. I mean, it, it, I draw parallels between being in technology and being in medicine. You know, you kind of get your, your base education, but you specialize in something. If you were to try and move to a completely different discipline, there's a lot of catch up to do just because of how quickly things evolve. And I think it's doubly so for IT and technology in general. If you're out of, the, if you're out of a certain topic for a couple of years, there's going to be developments that you need to go back and retrain yourself on. Um, and that's never going to end, I don't think. So it's a difficult thing to do trends and switch that up. So not that I'm asking you guys to come up with a new TSA solution, but I feel like the airport security people need to be trained in security as well. And I agree with Bruce Schneer that the potential laptop ban doesn't make sense. And it's, I think, more security theater. And what's something you can recommend that's more practical and achievable? I do agree with his assessment that this is a poorly thought out move. He mentioned, you know, first off, moving those laptops into the baggage hold, you're you're less able to scan them, and they're potentially closer to, you know, the parts of the plane that could actually do some major damage if something goes off. But why, you know, why would you want to throw this into? Why would you throw a laptop into somebody's bag covered by a John Powell clothes versus being able to scan it, you know, up front as they go through the gate? It doesn't make a ton of sense. Um, I'm actually a big fan of Bruce Schneier's work. Uh, my brother's been recommending him to me for years and years now. Um, I think he's completely right about this. Again, more more security theater. 
making people feel like they're making a, a smarter, safer move, but often at the expense of your own liberties and at the expense of, I, I think it's going to be terrible for business. I really do. You know, making people not able to do work on, on the flight over from, from those kind of countries, it's, it's a terrible idea. Off, off topic slightly, has anybody seen the episode of um, Adam Ruins Everything where he goes through a lot of security theater stuff? Yeah, that was a, a great one. Um, amazing. I immediately thought of him on the uh, little the iPad screen on wheels. Like I kind of envisioned him reading it as I was reading through this. Yeah, to comment on that, if they're really serious about it, and Bruce made this uh, comment in the story, I believe, the only, the only real way to prove it, and they do this kind of randomly, is to pull the laptop out, have them turn it on, you know, which is a whole other kind of headache. For those of us who travel a lot, it's just not worth it. So then we have to look at who's going to benefit from this. You can come up with a whole cottage industry of renting people laptops you know, to work on, on the airplane. And someone's going to make a ton of money on that uh, if they do implement it. It's kind of topical too. I had read an article yesterday about kind of why people get so so much air rage anymore. I think it was an article in The Guardian. And it has a lot to do with kind of the perception of class. So if you think about it, you know, if they take these laptops off of people or, you know, you don't bring them anymore and you can't work, you're going to have that cottage industry of them renting laptops or giving them to the first class people. And it's just going to kind of exacerbate the the frustration we have with air travel anyway and, and make people kind of feel more disenfranchised because they see the first class people getting to, you know, go through the fast lane, you know, get the get the free laptop, maybe something like that. So I, I think it's I think it's bad for a number of reasons, and I don't really see the upside of doing it. So one thing I don't know if I saw in the article was people are just using their mobile phones. Nobody's really on their laptops unless they're doing like work. So I haven't spoken much about this. I also like Bruce Nyer and think his information is good. But I there is a point where I think, you know, something something does need done. And to my understanding, you know, there's a laptop ban because there was a very distinct, credible threat of, you know, someone trying to come through with a laptop-based explosive. And the mitigating stuff there, it's hard to know. And I think it's very easy to just say, oh, this is security theater, this is security theater, and on and on. But it's hard to, it's hard to roll back. Like, where do you what would you cut out? Like, do we just go all the way back to, well, no pat downs at all. We'll just let people walk onto planes with just the ticket. And there's never a good spot. There's never a clear spot where you can draw the line on either side and say like, Oh, this is perfect. Now. I just don't know. And I think it's so hard on, on all the aspects of this where, you know, everything he's saying is right. But at the same time, I'm not sure there's, I'm not sure what the better way is. Let's talk about United Arab Emirates because I like what they're doing where they're not using ID cards and they're using your biometric data in order to authenticate and they're moving away from traditional ID cards. Are you guys excited about that? Wish we had it, but we're too slow on that. I think if they're sharing information, it'd be hard to share databases if the information's incomplete. The only thing I could think of when I read that is it's one more step towards the minority report future where, you know, everywhere you go, your iris gets scanned and they pop up uh, ads for you. Dealing with pop-ups on, you know, our, our regular, you know, mobile browsers or computers is is annoying enough. I don't want to have to cut out the eyeballs uh, in my head and replace them with um, someone else's to get rid of pop-ups. Well, this was in a specific case of, you know, government identity that you're pulled over for 
drunk driving and, you know, United Arab Emirates and, you know, they scan your eyeball to see who you are instead of just asking for your driver's license. I, you know, that seems kind of good. <laughs> well, Mike, I'll take the opposite. You know, you always kind of ask what's the harm. I ask what's the benefit. You know, where is there a credible benefit uh, to to this in relation to what we're giving up? You know, they have to maintain a, a database of our iris and all this other stuff and have it accessible. We've seen enough problems people have securing all the regular data we have now. I, I don't know if there's a credible convenience and who is it more convenient for. I don't really find it that difficult to, you know, slide my driver's license uh, into my pocket or, you know, it's usually my wallet. Two thoughts. One, a lot of people in the UAE still wear traditional robes, not a lot of pockets. So they always have their eyes with them, maybe not their wallets. Second, I think there probably is more in terms of, you know, fake IDs, you know, other issues with that where making sure someone is who they say they are is a good thing in a lot of cases. In certain situations, though, I mean, I, I can think of a couple of situations in which I would need to present ID, but I wouldn't need to have a permanent record of my, me being in that exact place. For instance, if I'm going to, I don't know, buy a beer somewhere, I don't need to necessarily, I, I think it'd be kind of almost intrusive to know that every place I've been because they've scanned my eyes, they've verified that I physically was there and have a record of it. That's the one thing that gets to me about it. I can obviously it's one of those slippery slope things like you know how how could that information be abused how could that be out of control I do think for certain applications you know if you are if there's some need to verify you 100% that's who you are or if you're in some sort of situation where you're you know I think the drunk driving thing makes sense but other situations it may be unnecessary maybe overkill to have that information exist Come on Chris what are you trying to hide you know, how, how comes you don't want everybody to know uh, where exactly you've been at what time? Sounds real suspicious, Chris. Yeah. All you have to do they is leave a single drop of your blood in this tiny <laughs> vial at every place you visit I, forever. I do that anyway. I, who, you, who doesn't do that? We've learned something about Chris. He's in some type of weird vampire cult. Or, I, <laughs> I actually think the biometrics thing could be like a counter against all the bias I don't know if you've read some of the articles about algorithms targeting certain people, and it could be like a good way for people's alibi to be like, I wasn't there, scan my eye. You can't really fight it because it's happening. I was going to say, I think the algorithms are going to come back and be like, oh man, all these jerks with macular degeneration, they're out of here. I'm going to like <laughs> find them all for speeding, restrict their movements to their homes. It, you know what, Cindy, I, in a lot of ways, I take great uh, offense to, to that kind of mindset. Um, I understand where you're coming from, but at least here, you know, we have the presumption of innocence until proven guilty. I don't think we should go around finding ways to prove that we're innocent for things and proving that we're at, or, you know, we're, we are where we say we are. I don't think anybody has any business. If Chris is going hanging out at vampire clubs, that's none of my business. That's up to Chris. And I don't that's think, right. you know... We have any well, right to track that. Thank you for backing it, me up on that, Kelly. I appreciate <laughs> it. Got your back, man. You know that. <laughs> well, I think that theoretically it's it should be you're innocent until you're proven guilty. But, you know, in reality, sometimes that's just not the case. So look, there's easily six, seven times a week. I need to prove I didn't murder someone. And, <laughs> you know, I need that reassurance of, you know, uh, I am where I said I am. What if we clone you, Mike? then great. Now I'm going to be murdered by my clone. So this is mm -hmm. so trouble no matter what. 
Actually, I just had a thought about how this may be positively applied. I think one situation which is which this might make sense is is voting. I think if you have to prove that it was physically you, especially with the you know concerns people have around voting ID and voting ID laws, you know this might take away the need for having a physical ID. You can walk in, prove it, it's you, and then there's no disputing that. That may be like the one situation I can see that working out because you want you, you know, we're gonna de- are you gonna deny that you were there to vote? I don't I don't think so. Well, you know what? Maybe I mean let me deflate your balloon there for a second, Chris, because Please. that's again part of the American process is we have the right to anonymity when we vote. It's nobody's business if we vote or who we vote for, and that's, that's why there's a lot of problems around the the ID laws and keeping a record of it, and especially some of the stuff that happened, you know, with with the tallies and counts over the past couple elections, we have that fundamental right to anonymity. And as soon as we start tying that to a verification that we are who we say we are, you know, maybe, maybe if we're physically there, but again, I, I, I don't think it's any of their business. I mean, you, you automatically get that sticker when you walk out. So there's no, there's no stepping back from that. Well, it's true. We, <laughs> can we just agree that Cyclops from the X-Men is having none of any of this, that he thinks all of this is a bad idea because he would blow it all away with his, you know, laser eyes. I, I can't disagree with that. I think, See, I think that's correct. just, that's just you're fundamental right. to our democracy. What's going on in Mike's, <laughs> I want to say corner, but then it sounds like, like um, I've been banished to the trouble. corner. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Six, seven times a week. I gotta like defend myself from murder. Well, this week I wanted to suggest that people check out our new uh, GDPR attack plan. So a lot of people know Troy Hunt. He is the person behind Have I Been Pwned, uh, a site that helps you know protect your identity and online security in a lot of ways from data breaches. He's a Microsoft regional director and very popular Pluralsight author. And he's done a couple really great courses for us uh, in the past. And he has a new one, the GDPR attack plan, what you need to know. And I think... The number one thing everyone needs to know is it's probably going to apply to you and you should really take the course just to find out if it does or doesn't because there's a lot of weird corner cases and different things where uh, the GDPR, this you know European regulation on, on data breaches and how data is to be handled could affect you and your organization. So the URL, sure, it'll be in the show notes, but it's info.veronis.com forward slash GDPR dash attack dash plan. Thanks, Mike. And also a lot of our listeners are in the U.S. So if, for instance, you're collecting EU citizens data while you were doing business with them, you should probably take the class. Thanks to Mike Buckby, Killian Engler, Chris Kaiser, and all our listeners for joining us today. If you want to follow us on Twitter to find some of the stories we're discussing, you can find us at InfoSec underscore podcast. Thanks, and we'll meet up again next week. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. See you.